bank cards were first introduced in the 1980s, the world looked very different and the idea of e-commerce was still practically science fiction. But when the pandemic shut down stores worldwide a year and a half ago and retail shifted almost entirely online, we witnessed an even more radical departure from the world bank cards were designed for. Welcome to Retail in Focus, the Retail Systems Podcast. I'm Will McCarty, Content Editor of Retail Systems, and today we're going to look at how the pandemic has changed consumers' attitudes towards payments and how businesses are reacting. There's more money in online retail than ever post-pandemic, with the total size of the industry in Europe and the UK expect to hit $940 billion by 2023. But there's also more competition for customers, which has pushed expectations when it comes to customer experience and payments sky high. While increased competition when it comes to prices has squeezed margins and made transaction fees harder to ignore for retailers. But despite rising consumer demand for security, the UK is one of the highest levels of card fraud in Europe, which doesn't exactly encourage consumers to open their wallets, while the cost of traditional card payments remains a common complaint for retailers. So while cards still dominated the checkout, many merchants are implementing alternative payment methods to give consumers the options they need to drive conversion rates and keep consumers safe. To delve further into these challenges, as well as some possible solutions, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Roger Diath, Head of E-commerce at TrueLayer. Welcome to the podcast, Roger. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Really uh, excited to talk to you today. Yeah, I really appreciate anyone who can make the time to join us. So just um, to jump right in, could you talk about I know it's a very wide question, but could you talk about the biggest pain points for retailers as they transitioned to a primarily e-commerce model over the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think we are in a privileged position here in the UK. We're already kind of the global leader in e-commerce, but the pandemic obviously caused a reset and we've seen it carry on at over 40% of spending in non-grocery items in e-commerce in the UK, which is unprecedented. That's obviously caused some pain and consternation for retailers who are perhaps less used to these channels or not used to seeing so much business go through those channels. So pressure on shipping, logistics, even website performance was stretched. What we're seeing though is the key part of the puzzle, payments, is sometimes forgotten, right? I think the customer journey is focused very much on the start of the journey, but not the end. And we're seeing the the expectations of customers during the pandemic who are used to using kind of in-app experiences are driven by things like how they use like the best-in-class fintech apps like Revolut. That is the new expectation and experience from consumers. And I feel like some uh, e-commerce retailers are sort of slipping behind in terms of how uh, meeting that customer expectation. We were actually keen to kind of do more than think about this anecdotally. So we actually went out with YouGov and contacted around 900 shoppers and 350 merchants to talk about how they've seen things change during the pandemic and what are the key issues that they're facing today. And interestingly, some of the traditional things that have always been top of list around fraud, chargebacks, uh, high transaction costs, painful refund processes, came up really highly again in this survey. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's the same issues cropping up over and over. And none of these issues are new. They've been around for 10, maybe 15 years, but they are consistently at the top of the list in terms of importance to retailers. Mm. And it's something that will continue to distinguish between those who are doing well and those who are doing badly going forward. I just wanted to touch on, 
So how do you feel that consumers' payment preferences have changed over the course of the pandemic? So I think where we've seen um, a change here is that the focus very much has been around moving to online and this new payment method that we've been looking at, open banking, has actually started coming to the fore. So it's something that's been taking off in the UK in the last year or so. And it actually allows a really seamless experience for end users to actually pay instantly via bank transfer. So from an end user's point of view, they authenticate securely with their bank account in the way that they normally would. And it just becomes, you know, the experience is as seamless as using best-in-class things like Apple Pay or Google Pay on your phone. But it brings a whole wealth of advantages for the, the merchant as well. And that's why we're really seeing this different sort of payment method taking off and gaining a lot of traction in the UK market. Yeah, and that's true. But at the same time, consumers and to an extent retailers can be so stuck in their ways because they've done potentially a very similar thing for the past 10 years. And now they're faced with these new choices and maybe they're not making the best use of them as they could. And as a result of that, they're letting money and customers drop to the wayside. So linking into that, how do you think that retailers can use different payment options to improve conversion rates for website visitors? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's important that there's a consumer preference to some extent. So just having a single payment method on your checkout is obviously potentially alienating some people. And I think actually with conversion rates, it's important to talk about the two key metrics that we follow very closely here. Uh, one is around success rates. So if you try and pay with a payment method, how successful is it? And with cards, we see sort of success rates around 80 to 85%, which is pretty good. But there are obviously some complexities here because you may have expired details, uh, there's fraud checks, declines by issuers, you know, it's a complex situation. We're seeing within the kind of open banking sphere, much higher success rates, much higher than 95%, typically around 97%. So from a consumer's point of view, it's less frustrating because it just does what it says on the tin and works straight away. And obviously from the retailer's point of view, just more successful payments are being made, which is critical. The other side of that is kind of the end-to-end conversion. So how do we make this whole process, particularly for a newer payment method, as seamless as possible? And that's why we work really closely with the large merchants that we're working with to actually really focus on that kind of UX and design piece as part of the payment flow and authentication flow to make sure that it's not just another option on the checkout, but it's actually seeing high adoption for the merchants we work with. And typically our target in the first three months is to try and get to around 30% share of checkout. And some of our top merchants are more like 80% share of checkout for open banking payments. Yeah, and that's something I do find fascinating because I think everyone who's listening to this has had the anecdotal experience of liking a retailer, of liking a website, or potentially liking a product, but not making the final click-through, of not actually making the payment and spending the money. So to actually see some quantitative research done into conversion rates is something that I find fascinating because there is so much that goes into it. It's not just providing the option, but it's how you provide the option. It's user experience, it's security, it's 101 different things that go into the mix. Yeah, quite right. And I think that's why we can see kind of the full end-to-end conversion funnel, if you like. So that actually allows us to kind of work with our um, with our retailers to actually optimize that experience. So 
moving forward, what strategies can retailers employ to keep their transaction fees and uh, chargebacks to a minimum? Yeah, I mean, as we touched on at the beginning, this is a perennial issue to some extent, and it was reflected in the survey. So transaction fees in particular were the number one issue uh, for retailers in the YouGov report, around uh, 30%. And actually, unsurprisingly, for people who are transacting with higher order value items, so plus £500, uh, chargebacks then comes into the mix very heavily as well as fraud. So the key thing here is with this you know, and it's just a structural factor of how, how this payment method works, is there aren't layers of intermediaries between the customer and the merchant, each taking a slice of the pie. So there's no interchange fees, there's no card fees, processing fees, PSP fees, you know, all these layers and layers of complexity. So we see the transaction fees can be reduced substantially by moving away from cards, which obviously for retailers in general, and particularly those who've been hit hard by the pandemic, is music to their ears because that directly hits their margin, particularly in lower margin businesses um, who are making large transactions online. Think electronics or flight tickets, these kind of things. The other key thing, which is also a structural thing, um, is because it's a bank-to-bank payment, which is authenticated, there isn't a chargeback mechanism as part of the process. And that's partly because we're reducing the fraud with this payment method. We're authenticating directly with the bank. So there's actually less chance of kind of card not present fraud because there is no cards to be concerned about. Um, But from the merchant's point of view, reducing the transaction fees and removing chargebacks entirely really makes a really low cost option for transacting online, which is obviously getting a lot of attention at the moment. Moving on to a pretty big elephant in the room. What factors can hold retailers back from uh, giving consumers a positive returns experience? Yeah, I mean, I think, as you say, this one, particularly if you think what, you know, some travel organizations have gone through in the last year, uh, is obviously top of mind or, you know, ticketing websites or these kind of things. Suddenly, they've gone from, you know, a few percent uh, refunds to 99% refunds, and that's been incredibly hard. It's a very manual process often to manage the payment for the refund, and it can be quite expensive. And the challenge is the slower you are in terms of doing processing refunds, the more likely that people are going to charge back. So what we found is actually, yeah, for people who've got a high order value, they see a high level of complaints associated with refunds. And majority of shoppers are expecting these refunds to happen less than one week, which is not actually the case for most merchants. In fact, I was in a meeting last week where a merchant described it to me as a, you know, the pain experience is like driving at 70 miles an hour on the motorway. The refund experience is sadly like trying to drive at 70 miles an hour in reverse on the motorway. It just doesn't work as seamlessly. And I think there's a big loyalty opportunity here. A lot of consumers are feeling a bit gun shy, as you said at the beginning, you're nervous to make online transactions. Having a clear, easy and workable refunds policy is a key loyalty opportunity for merchants. So this has always been slightly the Achilles heel of open banking is it's a pay in method, but there isn't really a refund method associated with it. We actually developed a specific product to allow us to do instant refunds as part of this overall payment experience. So not only can uh, retailers receive money in, in sort of 10 seconds when people make the payment, 
So they actually get the actual funds, they settle directly. But if there's an issue or you know, the event is canceled for some unforeseen reason, you can actually refund directly and securely back to the same bank account that paid you in the same 10 second timeframe. And we see this is a real opportunity for retailers to get people spending again and really kind of break that barrier in terms of fear of committing because of what's happened in the pandemic. So it's a big opportunity for all sides. Yeah, and it's something that really differentiates retailers in the eyes of consumers because, again, this is a very anecdotal example, but consumers, they might not remember every single positive experience they ever have, but they do remember a lot of the negative ones, particularly Mm -hmm. the serious ones. I mean, a lot of people are struggling financially at the moment and they can't really afford to have 100 or 200 pounds uh, floating in the ether somewhere to a returns process that they might not necessarily understand in the current economic climate. So I think that is something that's going to continue to be a battleground for retailers, particularly because some companies have went and really just set the standard so high in terms of the returns process. And now these other retailers, some of them a lot smaller now, very much expected to fulfill that. Yeah, and if you think about some of the most cutting-edge e-commerce companies, the Warby Parkers of the world, or um, some of the uh, kind of online mattress reseller, you know, they're actually leading with refunds. They're saying, try five frames and return four. So I feel like it's not just about customer service um, angle. It's actually about how do you get people to buy these new categories of products? And often it's leading with refunds makes a difference. Yeah, exactly. That's very much the case. So moving on to, um, unfortunately, quite a serious issue. Payments fraud has really boomed over the past few years. What do you think the underlying factors which are fueling this and how can business protect their customers? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is, as we touched on, just the, you know, fraudsters will go where the money is. And as online commerce grows, they're going to follow. And in our research, we saw that uh, two thirds of customers had actually refrained from buying something because of concerns about fraud. So it's not just the actual fraud, it's actually impacting behavior, which is what you expect. Obviously in the card industry, they're having to layer on additional kind of services and tools to try and break this fraud cycle. But you know, it's partly because the cards were fundamentally designed for an offline era. You know, they have raised digits on the card because they need to be able to be taken, you know, through a physical imprint machine. So they're, you know, and it's incredibly easy to buy stolen harvested credit card details online and use them for online purchases. So we think actually sidestepping this uh, using open banking could be a real breakthrough in terms of fraud as well, because the authentication you're doing is actually your bank grade authentication. You're essentially going through the payment process and at the end just confirming by authenticating with your bank as you do normally, you know, face ID these days or biometrics uh, to authenticate the payment. There is no exchange of details. There is no card numbers to steal in that process. So fundamentally, that makes it a more secure, lower fraud payment method. No, exactly. You made made some great points. I mean, I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast could, if they really wanted to, go in the dark web and buy a couple of hundred card details if they really wanted to within maybe four or five hours, if they're willing to do some background research. So the whole idea of payments fraud being this esoteric thing, you need to be a a seasoned cyber criminal to do. It's not correct at all. In fact, if anything, it's easier to do than ever. 
it makes you question, is this technology which emerged in the 80s really necessarily the best thing for today? In the same way, most people would acknowledge that the check isn't the best technology to use today, or that we might be seeing the end of the SMS text messages. Every technology, no matter how good it is, will eventually reach the point where it's not really necessarily the best thing going. And I think this is retail, something that retailers constantly need to be aware of. Is the technology which I'm using really the best tech for me to be using right now? And it's not always necessarily the case. Yeah, I'd agree. So in terms of regulation, how do you feel that the strong customer authentication directive is impacting retailers? Yeah, um, and I think that follows on nicely from what we were talking about before, because obviously, because of the high levels of fraud, there's a requirement to have this additional authentication step, which is fantastic because it you know, really uh, will reduce fraud because you're sending people through another authentication check to make sure it's really you that's paying. The downside of that, as you can probably guess, is you have to do everything you had to do before to pay, you know, input your card details, address details, et cetera, et cetera, and then get sent off for an additional verification step. We've seen uh, some flows for SEA uh, introducing up to 10 steps before the payment can be executed. And unsurprisingly, this is going to impact conversion. So there's the pain of actually implementing SEA, and obviously it's been pushed back till March next year, but people will have to undertake it. Um, but where we're seeing it's already adopted in Europe, I've seen reports um, saying it's impacting conversion by over 30%. So we're fixing one problem around fraud, but it's impacting, it's impacting the conversion rates at the same time. And that's why I think having a payment method that's designed to counteract fraud from the start, as I touched upon, the payment method is the authentication. There's no extra, extra SEA step, if you like. Um, it's included within the payment method. So I think that is the thing that we're seeing is kind of tipping uh, the thought process for some of these um, retailers saying, well, look, if we're going to have to add all this extra friction into our process, is this now the time that we need to start considering doing something different? Yeah, that's very true. I mean, eventually you have to think, is it worthwhile to reverse engineer and try and build security into an existing technology? Or is it an issue of the technology itself? Because your consumers love security and they love to feel comfortable with the retailers they're using. Ultimately, a lot of people are extremely lazy. A lot of consumers don't want to put a lot of effort in. They don't want to go down 10 steps. They don't want any friction whatsoever. So consumers need to be able to provide that at the same time as security, and they need to be able to use the tools which allow them to do that, whatever those may be. Yeah. So if our listeners would uh, like to learn more about TrueLayer, where would you send them? Uh, I mean, obviously, just start on our website, truelayer.com. And if you look at the e-commerce section, then it's very easy to download a copy of the YouGov report that I've mentioned a few times today. Uh, if you want to see all the details, all the stats, the methodology, um, and everything else. So that's where I'd start. Obviously, feel free to reach out to me directly on uh, platforms like LinkedIn, if you wish. Happy to answer any questions from any of the listeners uh, directly as well. So thanks for the time, Roger. I really appreciate everyone who comes on the podcast. And uh, goodbye to our listeners. And uh, see you soon. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.